Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name's Ali Hanley. I live near a creek and I love walking my dog along the winding path that runs next to it. There have been platypus sightings, there's an abundance of bird life, and kangaroos and wallabies create their own paths through the grasses down to the water. There are information panels along the walk with photos of plants and animals that you can look out for as you walk. It's entirely delightful. It wasn't always like this, of course. For the longest time, it was managed and cared for by the Jajarung, and historical records describe a landscape with a rich, deep layer of topsoil and abundant plant and animal life. But when Australia was colonised and whitefellas realised there was gold in these here hills, this whole area very quickly became a barren, muddy mess, pretty much completely clear felled during the gold rush of the 1800s and then neglected for decades, allowing invasive species like blackberry and gorse to run rampant. And then recently, a group of dedicated volunteers formed the Campbell's Creek Land Care Group and adopted the creek. Over decades, they've removed the tenacious weeds and planted native grasses, trees and shrubs. They're still hard at work and they are not the only ones. This is only one of the many lucky pieces, little chunks of landscape that landcare groups around here take care of. Mount Alexander has one of the highest density of landcare groups in the world. Did you know that? Until I sat with Bonnie and Hadley, who are today's guests, I didn't know that. They both work for Connecting Country, which is a not-for-profit organisation who have been at the forefront of our local landscape restoration for 15 years. They work closely with the many local landcare groups, private landholders and government agencies to restore native ecosystems. So much of the work these groups has done so far has been dealing with the environmental aftermath of colonisation. But now these groups are not only navigating restoration from past abuses of the land, but they're looking at how they might help build resilience and flexibility into the ecosystems in anticipation of another human-made disaster, which is climate change. So in this episode, I'm going to share with you the conversation I had with Hadley and Bonnie, as well as some audio from an event Connecting Country ran earlier this year called Revegetation Success in a Changing Climate. Of course, as ever, I want to acknowledge that saltgrass is produced on Jara country, the home of the Jajawurrung. They've been zero-waste ecosystem guardians and custodians of this land for countless generations, and they continue to lead the way and generously share their wisdom on how to live here better. I give thanks to them and honour elders past and present. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Salt. 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 Grassroots. 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 Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. Connecting Country, it's a not-for-profit organisation that was set up by a group of engaged community members who wanted to see some landscape scale restoration happening across the whole region because it is quite degraded land that's being turned upside down by gold mining so there's a lot of work that needs to do to sort of bring back in topsoil and plant cover and that sort of thing. We also historically cleared a lot of the shrubs then we had feral animals come in then we had stock come in and 
it will take many, many years for them to naturally come into a sort of equilibrium. The way that the Jaja Wang would have managed the land, that never would have happened. So mm. they would have managed it very differently. If we think of most of our large old trees as being, you know, probably not even middle-aged really. And even the, the ones that we consider large in the landscape are probably not that yeah. big compared to what they would have been. Yeah. yeah, so connecting country work to bring more species into the landscape and across the entire Shire. So our we work within the Shire boundaries of Mount Alexander. Loosely. Uh, loosely. There's a bit of uh, bit of leeway there. <laughs> um, yeah, so we work with private landholders to achieve that. And then we also work closely with land care groups. So the organisation hosts my role as a land care facilitator and that's government funded. And I work with land care groups across the region, but there's, there's a lot of land care groups in this area, which is great. There's a lot of engagement around conservation. It is unusual. Apparently this could have changed, but we have the highest density of land care groups in the world in this... In the world? In the world. <laughs> wow. In this shire, in this wow. region. Okay, and so land care groups, should we talk about what they are? We have many varied groups in the region because we have areas sort of in the north of the area that focus on farmland so there's groups such as North Harcourt, Cedric Landcare. So they work on farmland mainly because there's no public land for them to work on and then in the middle of Castlemaine we have some urban landcare groups and then we have groups that focus specifically on a waterway so we've got Friends of Campbell's Creek and we have Castlemaine Landcare that work along Forest Creek. Then you have groups that have selected an area very specific to their neighbourhood, such as Victoria Gully Group, who aren't far from here actually, and they're focusing on a specific gully, which isn't a large area, but they put all their energy into extending the bushland that's around them. And then, yeah, you've got more urban landcare groups in Malden, there's Malden Urban Landcare Group, and then you've got more f- farmland to the west and the south of the region as well. So it's really varied, and some of the groups that work on farmland might also have a little patch in their little hamlet that they work on. So Sutton Grange Landcare Group have some public land that they work on in the town. It's not really a town, but where the, the hall is and the cemetery and the CFA. And I think what drives the land care groups is their love for their area and they want to care for their local spaces. And not only that, it's also really social, a great way for people to connect with one another and feel like they're, I guess, giving back to the land as well. Mm. So some will do plant giveaways to all of their members and then their members go and plant them on, on their land or wherever they choose and then other people might be really strong in funding applications so they get money to pay contractors or some have large member bases so they do lots of volunteer work and use their members energy to change things whereas some might just employ contractors and get money some might work on private land of their members whereas others won't do any private land they'll just work on their public reserve
if it's just a group of people who are interested, how much knowledge do they have to have about what's appropriate to plant? Are there rules and regulations about how land care groups can function? Does council get involved? Yes, absolutely. It depends what land they're working on. And we've got some that work on Parks Victoria land, some work on council land, some work on department land. You need to get the CMA involved if you're on the waterways. You might have an MOU, what you can and can't do so you don't have to apply all the time Mm. for each activity? Yeah, look, some, depending on who they're working with, with the land managers, might have a great deal of flexibility, and then in other circumstances it can be very different depending on the land manager. and, And I think sometimes volunteers get a little bit... Because they are volunteers, I think we need to remember that. These people are volunteering their time which is worth so much to get out there and care for the land and when they have to jump through a lot of hoops sometimes it can be a little frustrating and I guess that's where my role comes in so I guess I act as a bit of a mediator between them and the government agencies. Sometimes I'm not needed because they've already built a really good relationship say with council or something and they're working with the natural environment officer but sometimes groups will definitely call on me if, if they're struggling with working with particular land managers. Connecting Country does work with CMA and local government and Jajarung and a lot of other yeah. organisations where we can with supporting each other to mm-hmm. implement actions for natural environment. Aside from your role helping with the land care groups, what are some of the other roles within Connecting Country and what are some of the other goals? So we have four areas where Connecting Country works. So one is land care and supporting land care groups. Another one is on-ground landscape restoration. So that's working largely with private landholders to help them to manage and create native vegetation. Another one is through monitoring. So we have a nest box monitoring program and also a bird monitoring program. So that's sort of built out of a need to understand whether the restoration actions are working within the landscape and to make sure that we can more hopefully catch anything that's not necessarily responding well or is in, in trouble. So if there's a bird that's disappearing from the landscape, how are we going to know that if we don't have some baseline data to understand and that takes a long time you know through Mm -hmm. seasonal and yearly changes it's very difficult to understand what's going on with all those different species out there but at least some baseline data being collected is going to hopefully help in some way to to enable us to understand better what's going on and then also through engagement so running workshops and education program blog posts and website stuff. So as Bonnie was just saying, the land care groups and the revegetation work that Connecting Country does is all supported by the monitoring and that's all supported by the engagement work that they do. And the event that I mentioned in the introduction called Revegetation Success in a Changing Climate really brought all of that together. It was an event put on by Connecting Country and all of the land care groups were invited along and various other private landholders and other people who have an interest in it and they were looking at strategies around how to plant and support local ecosystems. The event was held at a church hall 
there was a very full attendance. It was actually really well attended. It was a very full hall and lots of good questions at the end. And I will share the full audio of that event after I publish this episode. So look out for that. It should come out in the next week or so. In a minute, I'll be giving you a few little excerpts from the event, but I'll let Hadley explain how it came about before we do that. The whole evening sort of came out of lots of discussions that I was having with Landcare members who were feeling a bit stuck and not knowing whether what they were doing on the ground was the, the right thing to be doing in response to the extreme weather patterns that we're already experiencing due to climate change and was also born out of our Future Climate Plots project. There was a big call from people saying, we want to hear from the experts, and that's what the night was all about. We brought in Dr Sasha Jalinek, who works at Melbourne University, and we also had Ollie from JARA, and we had Tess Greaves from the North Central CMA to talk about all the different approaches they're using. I think there are about 70 people, so that was a good turnout. There was some Landcare members for sure. There was a nursery person which we were happy to see because they're at the backbone of all of the work that we do and there were some local ecologists which was great to see and lots of new faces as well. And lots of landholders that we work with and and some that we're sort of hoping to work with in the future. You know we know that this thing is happening this thing called climate change yeah (laughs) and this changing weather is happening but what do we do like we hear about all these different things that we we should be doing but how do you actually do something if you are a land care group or a private person on some land what do you what do you do nobody knows like you know you hear this debate about whether you should be planting provenance from local areas whether you should be mixing up that local provenance some people still believe that you should be keeping it all pure and from your area and then there's also this thing well if if our climate is changing if we're planting eucalypts or understory shrubs now we're looking at 20 50 100 years what is our climate going to look like in that time and if we're planting things from our climate here now are they actually going to be able to persist in that long-term landscape? So should we be bringing things in and adapting because our landscape is so fragmented and there's not that ability for plant genetics to spread mm-hmm. as easily as what once would have occurred within forests? An animal mm-hmm. potentially is going to be more likely to stick within a patch of nice native vegetation that's safer for them than to to go out into the suburbs where there's not many food plants or shelter plants Mm. and where there's a lot more predators and then then jump through those areas and go to another Mm. nice patch so you've got really really fragmented populations of genetics Mm. as well and so if that's not spreading through the landscape do we need to help facilitate that Mm. once that would have occurred naturally and we wouldn't dream of intervening if that was the case but how much do we intervene now and are we doing it in the right ways and Mm. what are the best actions if we've only got this much time or this much money Mm. what are the best things we can do to spend that resource to improve it and to help Mm. into the future 
And that's something ecologists have known for a long time is that we need a certain amount of genetics for plant species to survive and thrive and that they need to be able to move with climate change. But we've been told that we will have the temperature of somewhere like Wagga Wagga in New South Wales. How are the plants going to keep up with that temperature change as it happens so rapidly? So that's why we are thinking about how we can help. And I think for land carers who don't necessarily work in the environment industry, they were calling out for some information. They just want to know what they could be doing Mm. on the ground. We don't know if they're going to actually connect and reproduce other genetics. We don't know how much genetics is stored behind existing populations and so we're just guessing. Well that's the whole like the whole climate situation is is like there's no certainty. This is the whole problem. And do we jump in, do something drastic and and wreck it? (laughs) Or do we, you know, do we do nothing and let it all disappear? To me, we've got to do something and we're looking to scientists to tell us what the best way to do that is, but there isn't a source out there that's telling us because we're in such uncharted and new territory. So how do we provide that balance of what you can do as a single person in, in a society? Tonight we have three amazing presenters from different angles of the revegetation world. Uh, first we've got uh, Sasha from the University of Melbourne and Melbourne Water. And then we'll hand over to Ollie from Jara. And then we've got Tess from the North Central Catchment Management Authority. So we're going to go through those uh, one by one. It's really hard to pinpoint things directly on climate change because usually it's a cumulative impact of say insects attacks and cattle grazing under the trees and increasing the phosphates but usually it's a cumulative impact and climate change just pushes things over the edge. We're also seeing a loss in agricultural productivity by about 27% related to climate and an increase in extreme weather events. already seen the floods, we're going into our Nino year, they're projecting that we're going to see hotter and drier years for the next couple of years ahead. So how does this influence the natural environment? How does this influence our plants and animals? Well, we're seeing some dieback happening in Western Australia and New South Wales. We're seeing a decline in alpine areas, alpine meadows, because generally they can't get any higher than they already are. And this is also related to a decline in the alpine fauna, so things like bogong moths and uh, mountain pygmy possums. And we're also seeing movement north of mammals and birds up into the wet tropics. And we're even seeing morphology changes, so changes in the size of birds and what they're feeding on. So we're seeing a reduction in size, so they're not that impacted by hotter and drier events. And from a restoration space, 
we're likely to see some species not being able to germinate, so things like Bessaria, which need frosts to germinate, may not be able to in some areas. We're likely to see a decline in winter and spring rainfall, and this is when we do all our planting usually. So if we see a decline in rainfall in winter and spring, that's going to make it a lot harder for us to establish plants in revegetation, which means we might need to change when we do our plantings. And as I said, extreme weather. And that's really what the literature is saying, the science is saying that it's not so much the climate changing, but it's more the extreme weather events. So the really hot days or the extended dry periods that really knock the plants that we put in the ground out. High temperatures and low rainfall really affect the plants that we're planting. And it also depends on the soil type. So if you plant in really sandy soils, usually the plants don't do so well. Guarding might increase the survival of some plants, depending where you are, and also, as I said, and we'll talk about more about it in the talk, if you change the provenances, so get genetics from hotter and drier climates, move them to the area planting, maybe that will also boost the resilience of your plants. I'd also like to acknowledge any First Nations people who are here today. I'm not a Jara person, but I do have the privilege of working for the Jajawurrung Clans Aboriginal Corporation. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk about our climate change work at Jara. So we recently launched this strategy. It is available on our website if anyone's interested in looking at it afterwards. So we launched it at the end of May. And we're really excited about yeah, the opportunities that come through the strategy, not just for JARA, but for the broader community. So this is our climate change strategy. And really why JARA prioritised this piece of work is that many JARA elders and knowledge holders who work in the corporation or from the community really are concerned about what climate change means for their health and their community, but also for the health of country. And so it's been a priority for several years now to really make sure that JARA is leading on climate action in the region, but also offering deep knowledge about what country needs and when it needs it, what kinds of plants should be planted in the, in the right places at the right time. And so how I sort of see our JARA's work on climate change is a really exciting thing because you know as Sasha outlined we're in a climate crisis it's pretty overwhelming and, and scary and it's going to continue to be so but since working at JARA I've become incredibly hopeful for the future because I can see that when traditional owners are leading in this space we can get better outcomes for everyone and so since working with, with many JARA community members, elders, leaders, I've felt, yeah, just amazed at the generosity that JARA have to open their hand for others to walk on this path for their own self-determination, but to address some of these grand challenges like climate change. And so the solution in its simplest form is that we acknowledge that we are part of nature, we are part of the climate, we are part of country. And that's sort of a, a key element within the vision, but also the broader strategy that we need to provide ways 
for Jara as the traditional owners, but for everyone to get back out on country. So if seasons are changing, some of the plants are changing, so the fire will have to change. This one's a really important one when we talk about revegetation, because for Jara, bringing back cultural fire to country is really important for health of country, health of plants, health of landscapes, but also health of people. But acknowledging, and I think this is really clear in the strategy that Jara have a really nuanced understanding of how climate change is impacting these things already and that Jara are the ones that have been the most adaptive managers for thousands of generations. You know, I was in a meeting today with our cultural burn team and really acknowledging that, and, and they've, they've got 30 burn plans for the next season already, some of them in, in Castlemaine region or, um, as well, is that bringing back fire can reduce those, the risk of cas catastrophe fires but also encourage and, and build that biodiversity. And really key from some of the research we've been working in with various research partners is that in terms of climate resilience, a forest or a landscape will be healthier if, it's, if there's more biodiversity in it. So when we're talking about planting, whether it's on public land or private land, that bringing back that diversity with species is, is really key. And for Jara, it's about the right plants at the right time in the right place. I think a key one for us in terms of community groups is that we, as I said earlier, we really acknowledge the great leadership that many of you show and have shown for, for a long time. And Jara wants to work in and where we can, acknowledging capacity constraints sometimes that, yeah, we want to walk with others on that sort of journey as well. So we're really keen to work with, with yourselves on whether it's planting projects or, or trialling different things and, and how we can bring that, this holistic kind of philosophy of, of responding to climate change into the work that others do as well. The Climate Ready Reveg project was something that I wrote a couple of years ago now and it was exactly what tonight is about. It was to address the need for people who wanted more information and this thirst for understanding about, well, what do we do and are we doing it right and how do we monitor it? So at the beginning, it was just supposed to be another resource that mirrored the soils guides and the weeds guide and it was the next step in that series of resources that I developed over the years. And it very quickly did not become that. We realised very quickly how nuanced this needed to be, how complex this space is, how many questions needed to be answered. There wasn't just a simple put together guide that we could put out. So yeah, we have spoken at length with Sasha. So that entire presentation, Sasha has probably reiterated that to us about five times. And yeah, we're still learning. So that's, I guess, my first take-home message is that we are learning this along the way with, with everybody else. We've been out with Bonnie, we went to Nadu Hills and we saw that dieback that we were speaking about, the stringy barks and the grey box that just got smashed in heat waves and those trees are, are gone. So it was, you know, things like that are a huge eye-opener and working with our partners to understand what is going on in the landscape is, is really, really vital to understand what kind of actions we can take to mitigate some of these things in the way that we're working. So yeah, the experimental work going on at the Climate Future Plots at Nardo Hills is something we're watching really closely. And the provenance mixing is something that we're gonna start doing. So you can sit back and worry about the next Kudamundra waddle or the next thing that we're gonna introduce. But I think a bigger worry is doing nothing and not taking a step. So. We're going to start doing this work with the provenance mixing, but yeah, as it's already reiterated tonight, the bottleneck is the seed source and the nursery is being able to supply us and tell us what seed 
has been used in the plants that have been grown and we've visited nurseries the whole way across North Central CMA and that's the common thread is them figuring out where their seed has come from, growing plants and then providing them to us and that data coming along for the ride. Not easy. Connecting Country are finding is that the, the most important thing is if we are going to mix provenances is we need to monitor and record what we've planted and I think if no other message goes out to landcare groups that is the one. If, if you are going to have a go at this mixing of provenance or even just planting, getting stuff from your local nursery and planting it record what you're putting in the ground and go back and check it and collecting that data at the moment is absolutely crucial yeah so if you know that this plant here is performing really well where is it from like even if you mix five different provenances and you track that you have those five provenances within your area of bush or paddock usually. How do you know which one is performing well? How do you know if there's a single species that's all died out because it hasn't liked the conditions? Mm. So if even if you don't know how to monitor or what things to measure or you know having a, an opportunity where you can say this plant is definitely from this provenance in this area is going to enable people to be able to collect data into the future. How do we know what's going on in yeah. the landscape unless we all talk to each other? Yeah. Speaking of connecting the dots, I had an episode earlier this season with Cassia Reed and Ada Nano from the Wilderhoods program where they're encouraging people in their urban backyards as a neighbourhood, from neighbourhood to neighbourhood, you know, to create collectively some habitat for wildlife and to plant native plants in a conscious kind of way to help wildlife exist in our urban environment and perhaps even join the dots between these wild spaces that you've been talking about and that are so fragmented what's left. Do you see a connection between what land care groups are doing and projects like Wilderhoods? You know, I see this with land care but also the broader community that people feel inc incredibly disempowered with climate change and people are really struggling with eco-anxiety and things like that and we can all make a difference with what we plant in our gardens because not all of us have lots of land to roll out conservation projects so yeah I think Wilderhoods has its place and if people in living in urban environments are planting native species, indigenous species or mixing provenances, it's the same thing. Collect the data, record what's growing. You know, it might be getting a little bit more love from you if it's in your garden. But then if the landcare groups are out there in the nearby gully doing the same sort of thing and we're all complementing each other, I think there's absolutely a call for that and mm -hmm. we can feel empowered as well. Everyone could choose to plant an indigenous plant in their garden and that then potentially offers so many more opportunities for an animal to be able to use those resources as opposed to planting something that's completely not indigenous. And if everybody in the whole of Castlemaine had an indigenous plant in their back garden, that would create 
resources, corridors, corridors yeah. anything for the, for the animals to be able to move through. So we received funding from Ross Trust, which is a philanthropic organisation, who have helped us put together some climate future plots. So climate future plots are an idea that Sasha Jelnick and multiple others came up with. Greening Australia, and yeah. there was a few organisations that were involved in it. They wrote a, a guide around it, basically outlining some of the different logics behind climate future plots and how you could possibly implement them or how they've been doing it. So mm-hmm. the idea is around provenance and mixing provenance and getting a good genetic base for our species so that they are more resilient in the face of climate change. And they've based all of this information on modelling of what our future climate will look like uh, across all of Australia, not just... I don't know if they've done the whole country yet, but they've broken it up into Mm. sections, yeah. So wherever you are within Australia, you can figure out what your projected climate modelling would be in, like... 30, 50, mm. 70, 90 years. And so that's sort of a, a tool that's empowering. If you know what to do with it, you know how to find it. So it's about helping plants to mix their genetics. So you look at the plant's distribution within Australia and then look at getting some genetics, 60% from local areas and then maybe. from a wider area and then another 10% from further than that within that plant's range and not just looking at the hotter, drier areas but also at the cooler, wetter because they might have some adaptions within their genetics that we don't understand at the moment, maybe a resilience to insect attack, maybe ability to deal with a frost or extremes. The floods that are inevitably going to come. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so anything like that. So we don't actually know what, what genetics those plants hold, but if we can mix them all up and then tracking those individual plants so we can measure into the future how they're dealing mm. with our local climate, and, you know, we might find that a whole provenance just disappears within a system because they don't like something particular about our climate. Mm-hmm. Or we might find that there's a couple that do really, really well. And so then that would inform us and create a kind of seed that will have more resilience. And hopefully then we can plant those within the environment mm-hmm. out into the wider, wider areas and help our mm-hmm. local plant communities. I feel like sometimes this climate change stuff is like we talk about, you know, the planet's gone through massive climate cycles in the past and there have been mass extinctions in the past, et cetera, et cetera. Why wouldn't our nature just adapt to climate change as it happens over the next hundred years or so? Why do we need to help it? I remember reading once about moths in England during the Industrial Revolution and within a generation or two, because they've got such a short life cycle, they went from being white moths to being black moths because there was so much soot on all the trees and stuff. And so all the predators could see the white ones and within a generation, they were pretty much black moths. And then once the air quality cleared up, they reverted pretty quickly back again. And and so just talking about that, those sort of mechanisms, I guess, within nature, why... Why do we need to give it so much help? Yeah, well, I suppose our systems, vegetation communities, you know, one cycle might be 20-plus years. So if you look at the things that are going on within that 20 years, 
you need a few generations so does that make it a hundred years before things adapt and that's in some things that are quite well we would consider quite you know small and and quick to adapt Mm. we're already seeing a species threatened and dropping out you know there's been a biodiversity crisis declared so I think due to a lot of human activity across the world but we're talking about Australia and we're talking about our region specifically there's so much fragmentation as we were talking about before that yes some some species might be okay but some won't and it's about protecting as much biodiversity as we can because the one thing we do know is that we are healthier as an ecosystem with greater biodiversity. We know that we would be losing species due to human activity so I guess it's about helping to sort of reverse that and step in and take some action. Mm. We've got species like there's been a lot of interest around silver banksia, which is one of our climate future plot species. It's also the one that the North Harcourt Sedgwick group is working on, where 20 years ago there were lots of individual trees around. Since then, a lot of those have died, and we might have sort of five remnants or children of, like tracked children of remnants within our landscape now, but a lot of those are not producing seed because it's senescing or like getting old. Right. Some plants have their best reproductive age and then they sort of drop off after that. So when you look at the, the animal species that would have been visiting those plants, like yes, you get some birds, you also get mammals, so some of the arboreal possums and stuff like that. And how do they move through the landscape and how do they go from one tree to another tree which is 10 k's away? Mm. Like, they just don't. So that genetics isn't being shared. So they're also inbreeding within themselves, which is reducing the the fitness of the seed, which means it might not germinate or it might produce really sickly little plants. That's just one species Mm. that we can definitely see that within our observations. When we talk to nurseries and stuff, there's some seed that just never grows because we suspect it's genetic inbreeding. We don't know Mm. for sure but one plant versus sort of Mm. 500 individuals Mm. and we would have had woodlands off them growing from here all the way to wood end and now we have a few isolated remnants look at like the brush-tailed fascigal so that's an important species in our area it's a little arboreal mammal and it has a life cycle the males die every year so for part of the year the population is entirely female and then the females only live not much longer and so if you get something that comes in and disrupts one of their cycles you've dropped that species off and it can be in serious trouble within two or three years so when you look at those sort of things going on you have a couple of drought years with an influx of pest animals like foxes or cats you know they've done trials and where they've got rid of 99% of the foxes and there's only one fox that one fox is still eating all of the animals that those 99 other percent would have been eating as well so there's actually not much variation having one fox in the landscape versus having lots you just have one really fat fox yeah 
Yeah, I mean, one really much. lucky. Yeah. <laughs> lucky and fat. doing really well yeah. for itself, yeah. which makes it more resilient to... Yeah. I guess that's a point as well, you know, if we're talking about, well, won't the native species just adapt? Well, the pest species will also adapt and they might become stronger and more capable and they're sort of doing quite well as it is so that will put even more pressure on our native species. Yeah they're doing well in our urban environments so Mm. as we get more urban they're going to be more resilient. We've got two species for our climate future plots one is the silver banks here and one is sweetness area. So sweetness area is a small shrub that grows widely across our region and it's a host plant for elf and copper butterflies and it has a a really interesting relationship with ants and the butterflies and the plants so you need all three of them but as we move into climate change having a healthy and genetically fit population of that species hopefully will enable us to make sure that we don't lose any of the genetics as we move forward so in some other areas it is quite in trouble and only in a few few remnant areas Mm. it won't be as resilient Mm. to any number of climatic or local factors we might Mm. find that you know seed production is a lot lot more impacted because there aren't insects around at the right times of year as to when that's flowering we might find that those flowering periods change as well as the insects Mm. but how quickly they all adapt is something that we'll just have to wait and see the Eltham copper butterfly ant and sweet basaria example is just a beautiful example of it's a tiny part of the complexity and the interdependence and the symbiotic relationship that happens all across ecosystems and to understand that if a fungus attacks the ants and they fail then the plant and the butterfly both fail as well and I was actually thinking of neo-nazis when you were talking about genetic diversity and I'm like all these white supremacists are just going to be so inbred (laughs) well that's happening in the the royal family that's been happening for a long time in the royal yeah Aristocracy, there's, a, man. there's a reason that kings went mad. And <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, it's rule 101 in ecology is that biodiversity it is good. Yeah. <laughs> and genetic diversity is good, yeah. 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 But the bottom line is we don't understand the relationships between all of the things going on within our vegetation community. So how can we possibly manage it other than to hopefully help protect what exists already how do we realize that this little fungus is helping all of these plants to exist so when we're trying to recreate it somewhere because we've destroyed it all yeah we're missing, the missing factor you don't element. know what it is no yeah. and totally. we, we never will unless yeah. we protect what we've already got yeah and this is the argument against clearing old growth forests. we don't actually know what all the systems are within the old growth environment yeah let's chop down all the trees in this area and we'll go and plant some more trees over there (laughs) in the paddock with all of the you know pasture species yeah and we considered that we've done the same thing as what we've taken yeah it just doesn't it's not the same it doesn't add up and we're realizing that but is it going to be too late? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. that is the question. I think what's really 
unique to Connecting Country is our connection to the local community. So we've got people who are in our monitoring program who are volunteers. They might not necessarily be in Landcare as well, but often they are. And then we have all of our land carers that are really connected to Connecting Country and they come in, they tell us what's happening for them and they'll report things back to us. Bonnie will get phone calls all the time about plants that are growing or how old restoration works are doing. And yeah, we're sort of like a hub for our community of people who care for the environment. And I think that's a really important aspect of what we do is sort of keeping people connected. And if somebody's out there and they're unsure of how would I tackle this if we're thinking about a land carer who wants to bring in mixing provenances in their restoration, we would be the first person that they would call to say, well, who do I talk to and how do I do this? And I really love that about our organisation, that we're sort of like conduit between us all. Yeah, Yeah, it's great. It's wonderful. It sort of feels like a big old family. (laughs) At times we have our events and it's... A yeah. lot of familiar faces. Yeah, it's a very welcoming, beautiful community to be a part of. You walk down the street and you run into people and they tell you, oh, my plants are growing or I just saw this bird come in or, you mm. know, or they, they go, hey, I've been wanting to talk to you. I've found this new plant and can you help me figure out what it is? So providing that information and opportunity for someone to be able to then feel empowered to look after their own property Mm. and to help the animals and that's such a special thing to be able to be a part of and you can drive across the landscape now and I see our projects and how they're going and so I drive past a paddock which now has trees and birds growing and there's nothing nicer than knowing that you've helped to contribute towards that. We went on to discuss the minutiae of long-term record-keeping, sharing data in a meaningful way, funding cycles that are about a year long when the growth cycles of individual plants in question may be 20 to 30 years long, and the prices and processes involved in collecting seeds and how no matter how careful you are, there is no guarantee they'll germinate. Connecting Country is just doing so much important work in our region and the people involved are deeply committed, as are the people in all of the individual land care groups who Connecting Country support. If you're interested in hearing the whole recording of the event, Revegetation Success in a Changing Climate, stay tuned. I will be sharing it in the next week or so. It will either be on the podcast app, Saltgrass Podcast, or on my Substack, and I will let you know which way that goes. Links and notes about the show are on the episode page on the website. Don't forget to get your Saltgrass Ethical T-shirts, etc., from our merch store at saltgrasspodcast.com. For those of you listening on the radio, please note that you can listen to episodes of Saltgrass on your preferred podcasting app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. You can follow us on all the socials and you can subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. This program was made possible with support from Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. My name is Ali Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt. Salt. Salt in the air. Salt. 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 Grassroots. 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 Grassroots.
Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.